Chapter 8 Objections Cooperation does not require any legitimacy other than the voluntariness with which it is entered into. The moral disapproval by outside third parties gives no impartial reason to stop them, since the incantation of moral standards in a pluralistic world is no ace that trumps all other cards. Ralph W. Pooster, Philosopher The objections to the concept of free private cities are essentially divided into two areas, it won't work and I don't like it. I will now address the most frequent. 1. It won't work. Security. Free private cities will be reclaimed by the host state at the first opportunity. Even if they are defensive and independent, they have no chance against major powers. The host state has a contract with the city operator, which is also likely to contain customary investment protection clauses. In this respect, it runs the risk of being exposed to considerable financial claims after the occupation of the free private city, which could also entail a seizure of its foreign assets. Nevertheless, the free private city will try not to let it get that far, for example, through a combination of different means such as public relations, diplomatic contacts with other states, and a certain defensive capacity which at least imposes some cost on the attacker. Moreover, it can be pointed out in good time that the residents are highly mobile and would leave the city quickly in such a case, making it a less attractive takeover target. Only very few states have a chance against major powers, and in this respect it is already the case that sovereignty is already at the discretion of major powers. Nevertheless, even powerful states cannot simply occupy other territories without further justification. This calls other powers onto the scene and can become dangerous for the respective ruler or rulers in domestic politics. If this were not the case, none of the small states of today would exist. Law Enforcement No one can enforce court judgments and arbitral awards against the operator. The property rights of citizens within the city can also at best be guaranteed by the host state. The situation is no different from that in international trade law. Anyone who holds a title against a foreign state unwilling to pay has no superior executive power that can enforce it, but he can try to seize assets of the state in other countries. The same would apply here against the operator. The free private city has its own property regime, the legal consequences and transactions of which are also expressly accepted by the host state. This can also be enforced by appropriate property registers, courts and arbitration bodies, as well as the enforcement agencies of the free private city. If the operator disregards its own rules and expropriates its inhabitants, of course this does not apply. But in this respect there is no difference to other states, which also do this regularly. However, unlike expropriating states, the operator has an incentive to refrain from doing so, because otherwise future profits will be threatened. Cohesion Systems without ethnic, cultural, or religious cohesion are not sustainable in the long run. In the free private city, a culture of its own is likely to gradually develop on the basis of shared values, as has also happened in the U.S. In addition, free private cities directed only at certain ethnic, cultural, or religious groups are conceivable. 
Moreover, the question must be regarded as open. Dubai and Singapore have so far also existed without such means of cohesion. Changes to the contract The model cannot exist in the intended form for a long time. Contract changes and adjustments to current developments are inevitable sooner or later. These are either authoritarian or determined by participation bodies, so we end up with conventional systems again. It should also be possible for arbitral tribunals and courts to decide on new types of matters by recourse to the legal principles that have been in force for centuries and to achieve a reasonable balance of interests. That's how common law works. The relevant principles of today's civil law system still correspond to those of Roman law more than 2,000 years ago. In practice, in many new areas of life, there will presumably also be interest-compatible regulations without the intervention of court rulings or amendments to contracts, as has happened in the credit card industry, for example, to regulate cases of fraud. After all, there is the possibility of offering new citizens different contracts than the previous inhabitants were offered, and thus successively creating a new order without disenfranchising anyone. The issue of amending the contract is, however, one of the most valid objections and, in this respect, reference is made to Chapter 15 on the Citizen's Contract. Regulatory Deficit Such a minimal state can no longer function today. An increasingly complex world needs complex rules. The approach of free private cities is to counter the hyper-complexity of the modern era by simple, robust frameworks and not by complex laws, which then again have unexpected side effects and offer various loopholes for abuse and exploitation. Only a simple regulatory framework that offers sufficient space for the emergence of spontaneous orders can fruitfully exploit the decentralized knowledge of countless individuals. Living together is not a market. Political questions are not a market, nor is religion, love, or science. States cannot be managed like companies. Free private cities create an offer for a presumed demand on a market. An immaterial demand is also a demand. An immaterial supply is also product or service. And it is not the case that all other areas of life in a free private city are not covered. They are just not answered politically by the operator. It may be that traditional states cannot be run like companies. Free private cities, in any case, will be managed like companies. The answer to the question whether this works can be confidently left to the market, even if one does not wish to describe it as such. Insolvency it is inevitable that some city operators will miscalculate and go bankrupt. Then all the life plans of the inhabitants of these cities are doomed to failure. If the operator is threatened with or becomes insolvent, there is always the possibility, as with other companies, that a competitor, a part of the inhabitants, or the inhabitants as a whole take over the city themselves. Resident buyout. Moreover, insolvency enables a regular and debt-free new start. Our present world would also be a better one if bankrupt countries could go through insolvency proceedings in time. 2. I don't like it. Free riding. 
Free private cities used the infrastructure of the host state surrounding them and its military protection and could not exist on their own. Almost no state in the world is truly self-sufficient. This is also no problem if reciprocation, for example, payment, is provided for the services used, such as infrastructure or military protection. It can also be assumed that successful independent private cities will build up their own sufficient infrastructure as well as a defensive capacity over time, like Singapore did. Dictatorship The city operator is a dictator. The inhabitants are at his mercy for better or worse. The city operator is bound by the contract, which limits its competences to a few areas. Furthermore, the operator has submitted to an independent arbitration of disputes. Of course, because of the territorial monopoly of force, he would in fact be able to exercise a dictatorship. However, most citizens would then leave the city again, and it would be impossible for the operator to successfully found new private cities elsewhere due to the loss of reputation. In this respect, he is no different from the captain of a cruise ship on the high seas or the head of a remote holiday resort. Both theoretically have the possibility of acting as dictators, but they refrain from doing so because of their commercial interests. Segregation Rich and white people flee to their own private city ghettos and evade their responsibility. Black and white, rich and poor, Jews and Japanese, and all other groups that define themselves as such have every right in the world to decide with whom they want to live together. Anything else would be to force them into something they don't want against their will. That's totalitarian. Systems that have to threaten their inhabitants with violence or expropriation in order for them to remain in them will not last in the long run. As far as responsibility for others is concerned, each individual is, of course, free to feel a moral obligation towards complete strangers. However, no objective obligation can be derived from this, for example, for particularly talented people, to support people they do not know. There is no right to live at the expense of others. Against this, arguments based on Rawls' theory of justice are usually put forward. In summary, this means that due to the unpredictability of the lottery of fate, it is fair to have the talent and success of the individual also be used, to some degree, for the benefit of others. This would correspond to an objectively just social order which, behind a veil of ignorance, would have been so chosen by all. However, such theories are generally inconsistent since they limit redistribution to material goods. The good-looking womanizer can thus use his success for himself, while the small, unattractive, but successful entrepreneur has to share it with everyone? However, it is doubtful that anyone could be interested in a complete compensation for the imponderables of life. Or would you really want to share your partner with someone who might have been a little less fortunate than you? In fact, each person is unique and has a multitude of different characteristics and abilities, so that a balancing of talents and disadvantages is practically impossible. If the allegedly disadvantaged is not helped now, he has an incentive to strive on his own and to develop his existing strengths, which he may only then discover in order to conquer his place in life. 
he passes this experience on to his children and grandchildren, and society as a whole recognizes those who overcame their handicaps as role models. Such an order will tend to produce self-reliant, independent, and robust people rather than a Rawls order in which everyone demands compensation for their actual or perceived disadvantages from society or from those supposedly favored by fate. Exploitation Due to the lack of a welfare state and the corresponding protective regulations, the weaker are exploited by the strong. If people voluntarily come to a free private city to accept a job there, knowing that there is no welfare state and no minimum wage, then the assertion of any kind of exploitation is only tenable if one denies the person's concern the right to make their own decisions. In fact, many believe that most people are not in a position to defend their legitimate interests. In doing so, they implicitly claim that they themselves are in a better position to do so and therefore have the right to patronize others. In truth, that's presumptuous. Even in the smallest unit, knowledge is decentralized. Everyone knows best what is good for them. Some want to be consciously unreasonable and focus their interest on short-term pleasures because smoking, drinking, dangerous extreme sports give them corresponding feelings of happiness. Others are willing to take on low-paid work because they see opportunities for promotion. That's their choice. There is no middle ground here. Either adults have the right to decide for themselves or they do not. They get that right in a free private city. It will become apparent whether this leads to collapse any more rapidly than systems which enforce a regime of happiness as defined by others and take away more than half of your income in return. Moreover, even in a free private city, the weak are not defenseless because there is a private law system that protects against surprising clauses and contracts, for example. Finally, the objection ignores the fact that the protection of the weak and aid for the truly needy who cannot help themselves can also be guaranteed without state coercive systems, and this comes without their harmful side effects. As a result, free private cities will be able to give better social protection than so-called welfare states. However, the question of social security is legitimate and is dealt with in detail in Chapter 21. Exclusion If free private cities became established worldwide, at some point socially disadvantaged people would no longer be accepted anywhere. The dividing line is not between rich and poor, but between willing and unwilling to engage in work. As long as someone is able and willing to work, he will be welcome and there will be specialized communities, especially for the low-wage sector. In other markets, too, mass-market business can almost always earn more than the luxury segment. But a society can only develop further if there are incentives to improve one's own behavior, for example, with regard to willingness to perform, self-discipline, and reliability. In this respect, there is no reason to accommodate people who are unwilling to perform in any way. On the contrary, they have to adapt to be accepted. The bottom line is that this will benefit everyone. The remaining question is only how to deal with those who cannot actually help themselves because of disability, illness, or other incapacity, which usually does not exceed 5% in any population. They have been a target of charitable help for most of history.
Free private cities will not deliberately attract this clientele, but in return they will not abandon those who fall into such a situation due to accident, illness, or birth. There will be more on Social Security in Chapter 21. Global Problems of Mankind Global human problems such as environmental and climate protection cannot be addressed with free private cities. Most environmental problems are regional and can therefore also be solved at a regional level. The attractiveness of a free private city also includes a clean environment, so the regulatory regime will take this aspect into account. More on this in Chapter 23. Free private cities or residents who affect the environment of other countries beyond their borders are also exposed to legal measures by those affected. As far as alleged global problems are concerned, solutions are either possible without a uniform world government, as was the case with the restriction of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, or the problem or the proposed therapy are so questionable that different approaches are desirable. In 1972, for example, the Club of Rome predicted that many metals would be depleted by 1990. If the world had listened to this false prediction, the rise of the emerging economies, which brought billions of people out of poverty, would not have taken place, and probably millions would have died completely unnecessarily due to a planned and deficient economy. None of the catastrophes predicted in my lifetime so far have materialized. Famine catastrophes caused by population explosion, nuclear war, world radiation caused by nuclear disaster, desertification, deforestation, the collapse of ocean species populations, the darkening of the northern hemisphere because of the burning of oil wells in the first Iraq war, the depletion of oil, lithium, rare earths, but this time it will be different. The do-gooders are often only superficially concerned about the environment or the climate. In truth, it is always about power over other people. Genuine idealists who initially lead a movement are sooner or later always replaced by power mongers. In this respect, it helps if there are small holdouts somewhere that have divergent views on questions of supposedly urgent global problems. Egoism Free private cities polarize and divide society. People will settle in one place or another based solely on egoism, their own individual desire for a better life. If you think this through, every society will be destroyed because in the end you are alone on an island where nobody is left to think differently than you do. Man is and remains a herd animal and will therefore generally give preference to community with others over living alone. For reasons of averting aggression, he probably even must join forces with others. In return, he is willing to sacrifice his absolute freedom. But all group building must be voluntary. Let us just take a look at the clubs, interest groups, and other associations in which we are already active. Why should this suddenly change when the state, in the form of free private cities, is limited to the production of security? However, living together works all the better the more the residents' views on the extent of the necessary restrictions on freedom are similar. Therefore, there must be many different models available. Ultimately, competition between systems means that existing societies are changing in the direction of greater customer satisfaction and that fewer people live in systems in which they do not feel comfortable. That would not be a bad result.
As for egoism, there are only two groups of people, some who admit that they end up acting selfishly and others who try to hide this with all their might from others and even from themselves. The individual desire for a better life is not only legitimate, it is the reason for all progress of mankind so far.